This is Second uh, Corinthians or Two Corinthians eleven. I hope you will put up with you with a godly jealousy. I promised you one husband to Christ, so that I might find might present you as a pure virgin to Him. But I am afraid that just as Eve as was deceived by the serpent's cunning. Your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to these super-apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We've made that perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you, free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you, and I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools because you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool in more ways than one. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. 
I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from the false brothers. I have, been, I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I have faced daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak that I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Atreus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. This is week 11 of our series, as you've already heard, and there are 13 chapters in 2 Corinthians. So at last, after many months of studying this book, the end is coming into view. Dan started last week when we were in chapter 10 by telling us that he was going to shake things up just a bit. Do you remember? He taught us how to fight, not with sticks and stones to break our bones, our swords, our shields, but rather with the armor of God. And he told us that that would be the right equipment and motivation for serving. He talked to us about humility and gentleness and servanthood. But now we're in chapter 11, we still have the same underlying problem. The Christians at Corinth really didn't like Paul. He just somehow wasn't their cup of tea. You see, they compared him to them and to what they would like him to be as a great super apostle. And they found him with a long list of shortcomings. They had written him off that he was less knowledgeable and articulate with public speaking than they were. Plus, he was weak. He wasn't physically handsome, and he wasn't as athletic as they would have liked him to be for their various games. And in chapter 10 last week, we also discovered that they thought he was a wimp. If you remember back, they were accusing him of saying things in his letters that he was too weak and not bold enough to say face to face. And so today we pick up this part of the dialogue and we are continuing to study Paul's response to the Corinthians. So we have to remember that we are reading one side of the conversation. And if Dan were here, he would be telling us to apply a little bit of our own detective work alongside. Now, at times we might find Paul's style in this chapter a bit annoying He's boasting all the time. And also, this repeated need to defend himself can start to appear a little bit wearing and self-centered. So let's try to keep in the forefront of our minds what God is saying through this letter. Back in the time when it was written to the Corinthians. And also, what God might be saying to us today 
both as a church together and also individually. The Corinthians had issues. We know that for sure. But all churches have issues. And we know for sure that we're not perfect. Now, the final four chapters of of this book, um, Paul changes his speaking tone. He's now speaking much more directly. He's quite sharp with them. And he's quite defensive in tone. He's also trying to connect with them, I think, by playing them at their own game of saying, so let me try to boast a little while. But even more important than that, I think his tone in these, in these chapters reflect his desperation. You see, Paul's heart for the Corinthians is that they will get Jesus back right into the center of their lives. Paul is trying to waken them up before it's too late. And Paul demonstrates to us his dedication to persevere with them. He loves them no matter what. You get the feeling when you read the letter that they kind of hate him. But Paul responds by turning the other cheek. I'm sure some of the accusations that they made against him were really painful and hurtful to his human emotions. But still he persevered. Corinth is a church that's on its knees presently. Their state of spiritual health is much worse now towards the end of chapter 2 than it, of, of the second book than it ever was at the beginning of the first book. And they're definitely not in a good place because they don't recognize that the problem lies within them. They think that the problem is completely with Paul and they are superior to everything else that Paul is getting wrong. But in Corinth, it's still a church. It's not dead. It might be on its knees and in need of intensive counseling and medication alongside, but it's not dead. And Paul is an inspiration and an encouragement to us because he keeps on persevering with them under pressure. God hasn't finished with them yet. So chapter 11 that Andy read to us uh, so helpfully, thank you, is all about understanding that when we are weak, then God's power can work through us. So it's about serving in the power of weakness. And then next week, in chapter 12, we will be continuing this theme of God's grace. God's grace being sufficient for us in every circumstance. God's grace being made perfect in our own human weakness. Now, the power that we're thinking about here in weakness is the opposite of what the world thinks of as power. If I asked you to name a powerful politician or a powerful sports person or a powerful um, business person, you would have no difficulty in thinking of lots of people who are, who are impressive in terms of the world's standards. But the power that Paul has in mind involves submission to God, and that's very different. So we're going to break this passage this morning into three points. I thought if I got three points, that would stop me rambling on for too long. So let's hope for your sake that that works. The first thing that we learn in the early verses of chapter 11 is the extent of Paul's devotion to the church at Corinth. Paul's relationship to the 
Corinthian Christians is very important to him. We read that he feels jealousy. So verse 2, Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So Paul is saying here, I care so much about you. And we get a sense of the extent of his concern and his responsibility. Now, in our English language, we use the word jealousy alongside the word envy. They're like the same thing to us. But here, jealousy is born out of love for another person. And Paul was the founder of this church. It was still a young church. We have to remember that. So Paul was like their spiritual father. And he uses marriage here as a metaphor. Now, in the Old Testament, God also used marriage as a metaphor, and they already were married. So in Jeremiah chapter 2, we read, um, Jeremiah says, God's message came to me. It went like this. Get out in the streets and call to Jerusalem God's message. I remember your youthful loyalty, our love as newlyweds. And then again in the New Testament, we read about marriage, but this time it's the church that is the bride of Christ. And we as the church are waiting for the return of Christ that we read about in Revelation when the bride will come and be, um, when we will be the bride of the Lamb. Now, in May, we celebrated Nathan and Amy's wedding. They're not here today, but Amy, if you remember, looked beautiful in a lovely white dress. And now we are anticipating the wedding of Stu and Heather. Heather trying to do all her preparations to make the day as special as possible, particularly for Stu. And also, we spare a thought for her father, Neil, who has that sense of pride and joy and responsibility to deliver her to stew. Now, marriage is not the easiest metaphor for us to think about because I'm aware that for many of you, marriage has brought pain and hardship. But if we persevere with the picture that God is trying to help us understand here a little further, I think that will help us. Way back in the day, our son thinks it was more like the dinosaur age. But anyway, when Alan and I were getting married, we had those famous words from 1 Corinthians 13 read at our wedding. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And you know, those early days of dating and anticipation of marriage, and even into our marriage, the kind of honeymoon period were really amazing. There was lots of devotion and lots of energy, and I displayed lots of passion, believe it or believe it not, anticipating what Alan's dietary needs might be and trying to meet them and trying to be one step ahead. Alan was like a jealous husband, and dear help anyone who would have come too near me. And then we had our son, and we both understood something more of jealous love than we ever had through marriage itself. But you know what it's like? Time goes on. And the reality, when you're tired, the, the uh, pressures of life make consistency a bit more difficult. 
Rick Warren posted yesterday on Facebook that love is often inconvenient and kindness takes time. So that's a reminder that any relationship requires work. And when when I put a bit less effort in, then it takes quite a bit of time before the cracks start to show. But slowly but surely, we're moving in the wrong direction. Now, sometimes we do things differently. Alan has a more laid-back approach than me. But when I let style get in the way of the reason that we got married in the first place, which was that, to a large extent, we were both sold out for God, then we will have a difficulty. When you get distracted about the person's weaknesses and start to create a list, you can find lots of things. And in case you're wondering, I know that Alan could write an even longer list about me. And in fact, he is a much better example of unconditional love towards me and the rest of us than I will ever be. So we're not in need of marriage counselling just today at least, but if you were going to offer if you were going to offer, we'll bear it in mind if should we need it in the future, because I wouldn't want to be complacent. But I suppose the question is, do I love Alan more or less now than when we got married? The answer is that somebody said yes. Brilliant. <laughs> that I probably love him differently. Do you know, there's definitely less fussing over certain things, because that really wastes a lot of time, and I have a busy life. (laughs) But the depth of the relationship that we enjoy together comes from having shared a part of the road together thus far, with the ups and the downs, the bumps and all, the disappointments. And, you know, I think there's something in the illustration of marriage as God intended marriage to work that helps us understand this whole chapter. And particularly when we come into the second half and we're thinking about perseverance under suffering. So Paul's desire for the church, back to the passage, is that they will be kept pure. They will be free from worldly living and they will be free from false doctrine. So how could it be that a church would be seduced away from Jesus? Well, verses 3 and verses 4 tell us, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches Jesus, other than the Jesus we preached, Or if you received a different spirit from the one you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So Paul doesn't want these Christians to commit spiritual adultery. He desires that they will be kept pure and free from contamination from worldly living. Now we have heard before that this part of the south of Greece was particularly rich because it was a port, port, and that there were lots of gods, and there were 1,000 religious prostitutes. It was a toxic environment. It was a culture where outward appearance was valued greatly. And the Corinthian culture also valued the mind. 
They stood on the street corners boasting about the level of intellect that they had, about their qualifications, giving a resume of their CVs at every opportunity. They were debating loudly, expressing their opinions. And it was a culture where this sort of boasting was the norm, very different to to the one today. And somehow, the Corinthians had lost something of the simplicity of the childlike thought that faith in God requires. They had lost something of their sincerity. That simplicity isn't the same as being simple. But the sincerity and pure devotion had been taken away. As they tried to super-intellectualize everything, they missed out on some of God's richest uh, spiritual blessings and gifts to them. And then when they thought about the church and God, there was too little space for humility and repentance, for wanting to listen and be challenged. It was their lack of the spiritual armor of humility that we learned about last week that was a a total stumbling block to them. Let's try to make sure that the same stumbling block doesn't apply in our lives. Do you know, we don't really like, sometimes we even resent being rebuked or told that we're doing something wrong. That's a normal human reaction, to be defensive. But I wonder when we come to church, are we really open to hearing what God is saying when it comes to the really difficult parts? So we have this outside contamination uh, for the Corinthians. But they also had the issue that this passage focuses on, which was the inner contamination of the church. And that was even more challenging for them. So Paul was trying to protect them from false doctrine. He called them super apostles, but they really were false teachers. And you know, the Corinthians had fallen for the Judaizers and they had let them in. And in verse 3, Paul reminds them of Genesis chapter 3, where Satan uh, came in the Garden of Eden as a serpent. And so he started to get at Eve, if you remember back then. As she walked in the garden, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden, said Satan. Are you sure, Eve? Satan filled her mind with doubt and confusion, and eventually she succumbed to his suggestion. So the focus here is on the mind, that Satan is a liar. And last week, Dan reminded us that Satan is the father of all lies. You know, he tries to get people to listen to him, to ponder his lies, and then to believe them. And the Corinthians had been taken in by this other message what we might call a theology of glory. The Judaizers were into money and um, wanting letters of commendation. They coveted honor and power. They displayed gifts and they had uh, converts, but they boasted of the number of converts that they had. This is very different. This is not just a change in denomination. This is a total belief system, values system difference in terms of comparing to Paul 
And we've already been singing today that Paul was into the theology that we believe, that we know of, of the cross. You know where Jesus was mocked on the cross, where they said to him, you saved others, why can't you now save yourself? But Jesus willingly suffered. He endured pain and sacrifice so that we would be saved, that we would set free. Paul was never into self-promotion. And here were the Corinthians. The Judaizers were not preaching Jesus' death and resurrection. They were painting a picture of a Jesus that was more like a good teacher and a prophet. But that most important part of where our salvation comes from, from Jesus' death on the cross, was not a part of their story. But there were the Corinthians. They were coasting along. They weren't fully paying attention. And I don't think that they fully noticed how different this message was in terms of the message, a different, another Jesus, and another spirit. This is dangerous stuff. And so Paul doesn't mince his words with them. He's very direct in verses 13 to 15, where he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So it's, no, it's um, not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. So what does this mean for us today? Well, we need to sit up and listen and always remain alert. Because Satan is still roaming around and has crafty methods You know, he knows that most of us here won't immediately accept a lie. So he has to work cleverly to bait the hook. He looks for areas of weakness. Those shady corners of our lives where we are tired, those vulnerable areas. He looks for our areas of weakness and he knows which of us are more likely to want to break the rules and look good in front of our friends than others. And he got a foothold with the Corinthians because they were fixated on Paul the man, not the message of Jesus. And we need to be careful that we stay focused on Jesus' message and let everything else just go into the side where it doesn't really matter with us. So how would we know if someone who was teaching uh, to us was going off track? if we were being infiltrated by what Paul's calling a super apostle? Well, firstly, they wouldn't be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and the message of God's grace. And sometimes we need to be careful in areas of interfaith events. Interfaith events are great. They nurture a a, a sense of, of developing mutual respect between uh, communities, between people. But we don't all believe all of the same things. We don't want to be floating along, coasting along into confusion on that. How else would we know that someone was going off track? Well, there would be no evidence of reaching out to others and wanting wanting to have a dependency on God to do this. 
And then finally, there would be no fruit for their labors, for our labors. So new people wouldn't be added to the church. Do you know, we are so blessed in this church that our pastor Stephen's heart burns for all three of these things that I've just listed. And Dan and Brenda, they both complement that. In fact, for the rest of us that are leaders, we have to try to watch out that these uniquely gifted individuals don't burn out while doing the work of the kingdom. But for all of us, there is a role model of servanthood and humility from the top that Paul would commend, I think, if he were to drop by this place today or anytime soon. Steve and Julie are jealous for us as a church and for our well-being, that we will know joy and fulfillment and that we will be kept away from harm and danger. And there is a courage and a boldness to discharge the full responsibility, not just to teach us and encourage us when we're in need of that, but also to challenge us and to rebuke us from a, a point of view of what the Bible says with a spirit of love when we mess up. It's not just about being popular with everyone. So that's how we might know if someone was going off track. But each of us have been given our own minds, our own ability to think and wrestle with scripture. And we will have the richest fellowship with God when we start off in that place of repentance. Asking to become cleansed and pure again before God. It's then when we come with the right attitude of mind that God by his spirit will open our eyes to see and our ears to hear new things from his word. And we have been greatly blessed and encouraged this morning by the power of prayer in various situations. And it was William Cowper who a very long time ago said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And then it was Corrie Tem Boom who said, when a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. When he stops studying the Bible, the devil laughs. And when he stops praying, the devil shouts for joy. There's a large message in that about the power of prayer. And we need to be quick to use this most powerful weapon that God has given us. Paul in the passage wasn't seeking the approval from men. And let's just watch out that we are not more into seeking acknowledgement from man than God as well. The second point that I want to make uh, very briefly is about Paul's attitude to money and generosity. Paul declined to take money from the Corinthian church. In verse 9, he wrote, I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and I will continue to do so. When Paul was writing this letter, we know that he was in Macedonia, and they were funding his ministry. And Paul often wrote to churches, asking them to fund his ministry elsewhere. And this is a principle within Alpha, 
that people that are seeking to find God's salvation that are free shouldn't be asked for money. And it's one that we also try to apply in this church where we are very clear that the upkeep of our buildings and and the bills that have to be paid should come from those of us that belong, that are already part of our community of faith, rather than asking those that come as our guests for money. So the super apostles were criticizing Paul and saying, well, you're not a true apostle. Because if you were a true apostle, you would accept the money. But I think because the super apostles were exploiting the people for personal gain, that Paul thought there was too great a risk of any confusion over his motives for taking money, that he completely refused to take money from the Corinthians. You know, in this church, as leaders, we're really aware as well of our need to steward the money that is given, that's your money, wisely. And then the final point, this relates to Paul's commitment to the church. The second half, from verse 16 to verse 33, we had a long list of the traumas that Paul had suffered He starts off by saying that he's going to boast. He's going to play them at their own game, start talking like a fool. And we then hear that on his CV, he has beatings, floggings, imprisonments, shipwreck, hunger, thirst. The list is longer here than we were aware previously from the book of Acts. And some of these were Roman punishments and some were Jewish punishments. You know, Paul has been through it all. The Corinthians were saying he wasn't like a proper apostle. But I think we would all agree today that if God hadn't been in it with him and he hadn't had a clear sense of God's call upon his life, he would have packed up and given up and wouldn't have been able to persevere. The chapter concludes with the verses in 32 and 33 that tell us that Paul had to be Uh, secretly smuggled out of the the city uh, wall in Damascus in a basket, a bit like a load of dirty washing. And this was the ultimate humiliation for Paul, because in his previous life as Saul, Paul had been one of those authorized high leaders that it had been a great sign of honor to be the first person to enter the city via the city wall. And now he was being smuggling was being smuggled out instead. And yet, out of all of these trials that Paul suffered, the most important verse is actually verse 28. And you could paraphrase that by saying, yes, I have been through many trials, but the greatest trial of all, the heaviest burden, is my concern for the churches. Paul is passionate. He is jealous for the Christians at Corinth. At Corinth. And he burns with a passion that they will become jealous, not for him, but for God. So how does this apply to us today? Well, I don't think any of us are naive enough to think that once we become a Christian, all of our hardships will disappear. Rather, the stories that we have already heard today remind us that the opposite is true. Very often, God has a purpose in getting us to persevere, to remain under the various difficulties 
that life throws at us. Perseverance is not about passively resigning to life's difficulties. Rather, it's about being bold and um, showing a, a, suggest, a, a courageous approach to the hardships that we suffer. That doesn't make suffering easy. Suffering is painful, particularly at the time. It's hard. There are tears, there are floods of tears, and there are questions. But with God, that sense that he is with us, that peace and his presence is what we need to hold on to. And sometimes we feel that and we sense that more clearly than others. But God is still there. God is still on our side, even though sometimes he's silent. Do you know, we can't solve uh, the mystery of human suffering completely in this life. And sometimes we suffer, or those who we love most suffer, because our bodies are susceptible to aging and disease. Sometimes we suffer because we're foolish and we're disobedient and we make the wrong mistake. And that, that we make a mistake and that costs us daily. But we also know that suffering is a tool that God uses to build godly character. It's God's way of developing us. And in Romans chapter 5, we know the verses that say, we can rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character hope. I'm aware that for many of you, you're in a storm right now. And that's difficult. And we continue to pray, not only during our service today, but in the weeks and months that lie ahead, that you will know God as your rock in the midst of the storms. Ultimately, God's ways are higher than our ways, and he's developing us, and he's equipping us. But it's difficult for us at the time. Max Lucado said that one of God's cures to strengthen our faith is a good, healthy struggle. And he then went on to give the story of a silversmith. And he described that silversmiths, the word silversmith was taken from the smiters. And it, he said that the silversmith started to work with the metal and got the metal into the right shape. But then he continued to polish it, to punish it, to tap it, to rub it, to buffet it. And did that for a very long time. And when the question was asked, how long did they need to keep on working with the metal? The answer came back. They keep polishing it until they can see their face in the metal. So when will God stop with you? Or when will God stop with me? Well, maybe part of our answer is when he sees his reflection in us. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And Jesus is all of those things. And I'm sure you've heard it said before, do we feel that we can insert our name into those verses? The good news is that God isn't finished with any of us yet.
And so we need to finish. Dan would tell us that we needed to come in to land. Just imagine for a minute, as the letter arrived in Corinth and somebody stood up to read it out from Paul and all of the other apostles and communities sat around. Just imagine what the super apostles must have been thinking when they heard Paul's letter read aloud. This countercultural message was hard for the Corinthians to grasp. And it's hard for us too. But as we grow to understand more of the extent of God's love for us, that is the, that is the love that he showed through the manger, through the cross, through his ministry, to the outcast, to the forgotten. We are led to places of humble and sacrificial service that we could never attempt on our own strength, but will be accomplished in the power of God. You know, Paul had a very different CV. And I wonder if, the, if critics came along and attacked our character and our faith, what credentials we would offer of life's experience. We are imperfect people in a fallen world and the evil one sometimes singles us out. In those difficult moments, we have a choice to either complain and potentially get so disillusioned that we're at risk of giving up on God or to let God mold us and work in us. And God's plan is that we will do this and that we will do it not on our own, but in community. A few Sunday mornings ago, when I got up, um, I saw a little vlog from Tim Alford, who heads up the youth part of our Elam movement. And he was challenging young people early on the Sunday morning as he was driving to church, whether or not they were going to get out of bed and get themselves down to their church. And he said, the church is the bride of Christ. God doesn't have a plan B. So he needs you to form part of the community of faith. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of us, for encouraging me. Thanks for sharing the journey in these days of waiting and opportunity before the Lord returns and takes our church, us home, as his bride. Let us just reflect on what we have heard, what God is saying to us through this verse. Let us pray.